I'm Les Chapman, Senior Minister of the Hendersonville Church of Christ, and we welcome you to our services today. I want to begin by wishing all of our fathers Happy Father's Day. You know, I guess all of us approach Father's Day differently. For some of you, you'll be able to go and see your fathers to visit with them or maybe make a phone call to tell them how much they mean to you and how much you love them. For others of us, we've lost our fathers. My father's been gone for 17 years, went to be with the Lord in 2003. And yet I spend today thanking God for having a wonderful father. For others of you, today may be a sad day. A sad day because it's the first Father's Day uh, without your dad. And then there are others who unfortunately were reared in families where either father was absent or maybe father wasn't what he should have been. You know, in those cases, I would simply ask you to turn to the one true father that we can all trust, which is our Heavenly Father. You know, when God chose to reveal himself to us in a more intimate way in the New Testament, he chose the concept of Father. Jesus, in fact, taught us when we pray, pray, our Father, who is in heaven. And so I just pray that today God will bless you in whatever uh, stage you find yourself in life. May God bless you with a happy Father's Day. We are in a series of lessons entitled His Story. And for the last several weeks, we've been in the Old Testament looking at the prophecies about the coming Messiah. And today we finish this series of lessons. Next week we'll be moving over into the New Testament. And we come to a book, the last book of the Old Testament, called the book of Malachi. Malachi ends the Old Testament for us. You know, you go from Malachi into the New Testament, into the book of Matthew. And Malachi ends his particular prophecy in chapters 3 and 4, only four chapters in his book, with prophecies about the coming Messiah and about the one who would prepare the way for him. Now, what's interesting about Malachi is that Malachi approaches the coming Messiah in a different way than perhaps some of the other prophecies we've been looking at. You know, each prophecy is different. It focuses on a different aspect about the coming Messiah. 2 Samuel 7, 13, 14, and 16 talks about the Messiah will be a descendant of David and will sit on his throne forever. You turn to Psalm 22 and you get this remarkable psalm of the crucifixion of Jesus. An amazing detail. Psalm 110 tells us about the role of the coming Messiah. How that, yes, he will be a descendant of David sitting on his throne, but he'll also be a priest. And since he's not from the tribe of Levi, he comes from a different order, the order of Melchizedek. You turn over to Isaiah 53, that great suffering servant psalm of Isaiah. And there, Isaiah informs us that the Messiah will be the Lamb of God, to use the words of the Apostle John, who takes away the sins of the world, who makes atonement for our failures and mistakes. You then go to the book of Daniel, and Daniel tells us that he will establish a kingdom that will last forever, and that will eventually bring all other kingdoms of the earth under his authority. In Jeremiah 31 last week, we looked at the new covenant the Messiah would establish and how that the Holy Spirit, as we looked at Ezekiel briefly, will come and, and be given to us to help us under this new covenant. Well, Malachi ends in a very different way. 
Yes, he's predicting the coming of the Messiah, but he focuses on, almost in laser fashion, a very different aspect of what the Messiah will accomplish in our lives. And that has to do with holiness. You know, when we talk about our relationship with God, the New Testament emphasizes two different aspects of it. One is that of atonement. You know, how will God deal with the sins in our life? And so when you turn to passages like Acts 2.38, where Peter is responding to a question to the people on the day of Pentecost, he'll say to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the remission of sins. There's that concept of atonement that somehow in our repentance and obedience to the command to be baptized, Jesus' blood washes us clean. But then he goes on and he says, and he'll give you the gift of the Holy Spirit, which focuses on a second aspect of our walk with Christ. You see, when we obey the gospel, God deals with our past sins. But he gives us the Holy Spirit to help us deal with, with our future sins. We sing an old invitation song, just as I am. And you know, God receives us just as I am, or just as you are, but he doesn't leave us there. And that's what Malachi is going to be talking about, how that the Messiah comes to purify his people, to refine his people, to, to return his people to the image of God they were created to be. And I want to tell you, it's a tough prophecy. It's a prophecy that, that deals with the fact that, you know, when we obey the gospel, we begin a process of dealing with those sin habits. And I don't know about you, but for me, stamping out sin in my life has been the hardest thing I've ever tried to do. And I'm still working on it. I suspect you are too. And so Malachi talks about Jesus' desire to make us holy people. So let's look at this last prophecy of the last prophet of the Old Testament. Malachi 3.1 simply states, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you're seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. Now, you need to understand a little bit about the historical context of Malachi. Malachi lives about 75 to 100 years after the exile of Judah into Babylonian captivity. You may recall last week when we were looking at Jeremiah, how that we talked about how that God had promised if the Israelites didn't follow his commandments as found in the Torah, Genesis through Deuteronomy, that God would send them into the nations. 722 B.C., he sent the northern tribes into Assyrian captivity, and they never returned from it. And then, beginning around 605 uh, B.C., all the way down to about 586, 87 B.C., there were multiple exiles of the southern tribe until finally Jerusalem was destroyed and the Temple of Solomon burned. And so they had gone into Babylonian captivity, the entire nation of Judah. Jeremiah had said something specific about this in Jeremiah 29. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. 
In other words, Jeremiah said that the Babylonian exile would last 70 years and then God would fulfill his promise. Now, one of the things you find scattered throughout the prophets of the Old Testament is God saying, if you will simply come back to me, if you'll seek me with all of your heart, if you'll turn from your sinful ways, I will bless you beyond all the nations of the earth. But if you don't, I'll discipline you and punish you. And so the exile was exactly God fulfilling that promise. And yet God has said, I'm going to restore you. But something unfortunate happened. Judah didn't repent. They didn't return to the Lord like they ought. Now, did some of them come back to Judah after 70 years? They did. God fulfilled at least one aspect of that. But the exile, the exile from God's presence, lasted a lot longer. Notice what Daniel says. This is Daniel chapter 9. And, and Daniel, of course, had, by this time, he's an old man. He had lived through the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar's son, his grandson. And now the Medo-Persians have taken over. And so in the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, he's now ruling over Babylon. Daniel says, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. Daniel knew the prophecy of Jeremiah. But notice what happens. As he goes on in chapter 9, Gabriel, the same angel that told Joseph and Mary that they would have a child, he comes to Daniel and he changes the promise of Jeremiah because the people had not fulfilled their side of the covenant. Seventy-sevens, Gabriel says, are decreed for your people in your holy city. Not 70 years, but 490. In other words, almost 500 years. But he goes on to say, after that period of God being kind of absent, that's why the prophets, after a while, simply quit speaking. That's why if you went to the temple in Jerusalem, there was no Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. It had disappeared after the Temple of Solomon had been destroyed. But Gabriel gives them hope. He says God's going to put an end to sin. He's going to atone for wickedness. He's going to bring in everlasting righteousness. He's going to seal up vision and prophecy. And he's going to anoint the most holy place. The most holy place in heaven as opposed to the one in Jerusalem. In other words, Gabriel said God is going to do something amazing. And of course, once again, that is done by Jesus as the Messiah of God. And so in Malachi, you have this ending uh, of the prophecies that, that we find in the Old Testament. Malachi is living, as I said, some 75 to 100 years after they had come back to Jerusalem, had rebuilt the city somewhat, had rebuilt the temple, and yet the people were still sinning. And Malachi is sent to the Lord, uh, is sent by the Lord to once again say, listen, you need to repent because what you're experiencing is because of your sins. Notice how he begins this particular prophecy. A prophecy, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. Malachi simply means the Lord's messenger. And we don't know if that's a proper name or a descriptive title. But notice what the prophet said. I have loved you, says the Lord. 
you know, through all of everything that both Israel and Judah had gone through, God still loved his people. And he wanted them to know that. Even though they had returned from exile, even though everything seemed to be going bad, it wasn't because he didn't love them, because he still did. Their response was to say, how have you loved us? And what takes place in Malachi is these uh, this, this kind of trial scene that takes place. It's as if God had called Judah to the temple and the Levites are acting as judges and God is presenting his case and they're presenting their case. God begins by saying, I love you. I still love you. And the people respond, really? We don't see it. And what follows in this book are charges that God levels against Judah. Now, let me just say something. If you're ever in trial against God, don't expect to win. You know who's going to win. And so God brings four charges against Judah to explain why they're still in the situation they're in. He begins by saying, look at your sacrifices. You know, if you go back to the book of Leviticus, when the people were to go to the temple or the tabernacle prior to it, they were to offer the very best they had to offer. You turn over to Malachi 1, beginning in verse 6, and God says, guess what you're bringing to me? You're bringing the lame, you're bringing the, the sheep or the goats or the bulls that you couldn't even sell in the marketplace. And that's what you're offering to me. Do you think that's what I'll accept? He says, I'm tired of your sacrifices. In Malachi 2, he turns then to the Levites and he says, listen, why are you not fulfilling your role? You see, the Levitical tribe was the tribe that God had chosen for his own. It was the tribe Moses and Aaron was from. And they were to be the teachers of Israel. But in Malachi 2, he says, you're not. You haven't taught them at all. He goes on in the latter end of the second chapter and he talks about their marriage relationships. And he says, some of you are marrying foreign wives and the ones of you that are marrying Jewish wives, guess what you're doing? As they get older, you're divorcing them to marry someone else. You're breaking that marriage covenant. And of course, there is where God says, I hate divorce. And then in Malachi 3, he says, you want to know why I'm not blessing you? You're not blessing me. God had commanded the tithe in the Torah and they weren't bringing the tithe. And God reminds them here in Malachi 3, he says, if only you would bring the tithe to the temple, I would open up the storehouses of heaven and bless you beyond anything you could imagine. But you know what? They didn't trust and believe in God's promises. And so God brings these charges against them. And then as you get to chapter 3 and chapter 4, God then focuses on the fact that there still is a remnant. Notice in chapter 3, Here's the accusation he makes against them. You have spoken arrogantly against me, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? By the way, if you complain about God, God knows. Even if you complain about him under your breath, he knows the thoughts in your heart. And notice what God says. You have said it is futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? I'm sure the people thought, wow, he was listening. How did he know I was thinking that? And yet, there was a remnant. Notice in verse 16, 
Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. And so what you have around this text is these prophecies about how that God is going to to save his people and refine his people and restore them to what God created them to be. And so going back to this messianic hope that Malachi once again holds out, he begins in chapter 3, verse 1, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. By the way, this verse is quoted in Matthew, Mark, Luke. I mean, it's very obvious who Malachi was talking about. Notice what Jesus says. This is Matthew 11. And in Matthew 11, Jesus has gotten word that John has been beheaded. And so he begins to talk about who John was. And notice what he says. This is the one about whom it is written from Malachi 3. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Now, what's interesting about Malachi is that's not the only time he talks about uh, John the Baptist. You go over to chapter 4 and the last two verses of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 4 talks about this coming messenger. And notice what he says. Send, I will See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He'll turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. Now, I want to call your attention to the last phrase there, verse 6, last verse of the Old Testament. Notice the role of John the Baptist to the nation of Judah. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to the parents. In other words, he's going to begin a revival that starts in the family itself. What an appropriate text for Father's Day. But he doesn't end there. And I think oftentimes we miss the last phrase. Or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. In Matthew chapter 17, Jesus had taken Peter, James, and John up on a mountain and there was transfigured in front of them. God appeared in a, in, in a cloud and he says to Peter, James, and John, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Now, why does he call him to listen to him? And the answer is simply that uh, Peter, in, in chapter 16, had confessed that Jesus was the Messiah. And yet, when Jesus began to explain how that he had to go to Jerusalem, suffer and die and be raised the third day, Peter pulled him aside and rebuked him and said, this will never happen to you. And so, Jesus takes them up on the mountain to try and get their attention. You see, when God tells you, you better listen, you start listening. And so as they're coming down from the mountain, Peter, James, and John turns to Jesus and says, but we thought Elijah was supposed to come first. And notice Jesus' response. To be sure, Elijah comes and we're, we're restore all things. At least that was his aim to do. But notice what he goes on to say. But I tell you, Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. And in the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. And then he says, and they understood that he was talking about John the Baptist. 
You see, Malachi had promised that when Elijah, John the Baptist, came, he would create this revival among the nation of Judah. And you know, at first it seemed so promising. Thousands of people flocked to John to be baptized in the Jordan, but not the religious leaders, and definitely not the political leaders. Here at Antipas, after John criticized him for his adultery, would take him, put him in prison, and eventually have him beheaded. Which brings us back to that last passage in Malachi chapter 4, verse 6. He will either bring about a great revival in Judah as people return to God, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. And so you have to ask yourself a very simple question. Which of those two happened? I mean, when John came, did the nation of Judah repent? Or did they eventually become a people who God destroyed? Notice what the text tells us. This is Matthew 24. Last week of Jesus' life, he's been at the temple teaching. They're leaving the temple, and the text says that as they were walking away, the disciples came up to him to call his attention to the buildings, these beautiful buildings that Herod the Great had built there as a part of the temple complex. Do you see all these things, he said? Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. They asked Jesus when it would happen, and Jesus says it would happen within this generation. It will be total destruction, just as Malachi predicted. But if we go back to the text, there's more to this prophecy. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Now, that's important to see because God is the one who is speaking here. You know, the big question is, who is this Messiah? Well, he's the son of David. But as Jesus asked, if he's the son of David, why does he call him Lord? And of course, what Malachi had an insight into that we don't see clearly until we get to the New Testament is that, yes, in the beginning was the Word, as John would write, and the Word was with God, and that Word was God. And that word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. You see, it was God who was coming to the people. And so he lets them know that, listen, I'm on my way. He then says, then the Lord, or then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant. Don't miss that. The messenger of the covenant. What is he talking about here? You remember last week in Jeremiah 31, 31? The days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. Who's the messenger of that covenant? It's Jesus. As we saw last week, instituting the covenant as he instituted the Lord's Supper. And then Malachi gives a warning. He is the messenger of the covenant, but he has a particular task he's coming to do. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? Does Jesus bring hope? Absolutely. But Jesus also brings something else. He brings judgment. You know, when you turn to the Gospels, what's fascinating is the way this prophecy is fulfilled in the Gospels. In John's Gospel, you have Jesus beginning his ministry. And the first thing he does in John 2 is he goes to the temple sees what it's become. It's not the house of prayer it was supposed to be. It's not the place of worship, of, of, of atonement. It's been turned into a marketplace and a den of thieves. And you have Jesus literally taking a whip 
and driving out the, the merchants there, overturning the, the money changers, driving out the cattle and the sheep and the goats and the doves. Why? Because they had turned God's holy place into an unholy place. He suddenly appeared. And of course, the people, the leaders of the temple came up and said, by what authority are you doing this? It would begin a very difficult three-year period as Jesus would find himself constantly in conflict with the religious authorities in Jerusalem. And then you turn to the Gospel of Matthew. And Jesus comes into the city on, on Palm Sunday. He's, he's praised and proclaimed to be the king of Israel. All the religious leaders are wondering what in the world is going on. He comes in, he looks at the temple. And I can't help but think that boy's anger was aroused again because he goes back to Bethany for the night, comes back on Monday morning, and guess what? He cleanses it a second time. I mean, it's fascinating that he suddenly appears at the beginning of his ministry. He suddenly appears at the end of his ministry. And he comes to the temple. And what is he wanting to do? He's wanting to purify, not the temple. Yes, that's what it appears to be that he's doing. But he wants to purify his people. Notice what Malachi says. He will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He goes on to describe the refiner's fire. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. You know, when, you, when you're mining for gold or silver, initially they've got impurities blended in with, with the silver or the gold. And so what you do is you heat it up until it melts and the impurities will rise to the top and you'll skim them off so that you have pure gold and pure silver. And of course, you've also got the illustration of, you know, washing clothes. I mean, June, when she goes to wash, his, wash clothes, what does she do? Well, she has to put something in it, you know, some type of cleanser, to help the water wash the clothes. Jesus would be the launderer's soap. Why? Because he wants to purify the Levites. Now, the Levites there stand as kind of an illustration of all of his people. He wants to purify the nation of Israel. And, of course, that would include, eventually, those of us who are Gentiles. You know, I love the way the New Testament picks up on this concept of the importance of holiness. This is from 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16, and it's the Passion Translation, a translation I, I like sometime. And, and notice how it translates 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16. Shape your lives to become like the Holy One who called you. That's exactly what Malachi is saying the Messiah would do. And then he quotes, for Scripture says, you are to be holy. Why? Because God is holy. We're to be holy because we were created in his image. And then notice what Malachi says, then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. See, God's looking for our lives to be lives that display a gift to him of righteousness. He goes on and he says, so I will come to you and put you on trial. As I mentioned a few moments ago, yes, he comes as the Savior, but he also comes as the judge. I'll be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, 
perjurers who'd be liars, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress widows and the fatherless, and deprive the foreigner among you of justice. But do not fear me. See, God wants righteousness in every aspect of our lives, in the way we relate to him, but also in the right way we relate to one another. And of course, we find our nation in the midst of this great battle about injustice. And what I would like to say to people is, you want people to treat one another justly. First, get them to be right with God. You see, if you want to help save our nation, help save your neighbor who does not know Jesus, that's the first place to begin. On that day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, they will be my treasured possession. God wants us to be his special, Peter would describe us as peculiar people. And I love this next phrase. I will spare them just as a father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. What is Malachi saying? He's saying simply God wants to be our father. And so I ask you today, is God your father? You see, it's Father's Day. And what better day to become a child of God and to call him Father than Father's Day. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who, not, who do not. If ever there was a time when the world needs to see a different way of living, people who stand up for what's right, both in our relationship with God and in our relationship with one another. It begins with the relationship with Jesus. Have you been baptized? Have you turned from your sins and said, you know what, I want Jesus to be the lamb that takes away my sins and I want the gift of the Holy Spirit in order to become like God because that's what he created you to be. If you need to obey the gospel, please call me. Please contact one of our elders. We'll be happy to meet you here at the building and to baptize you into Christ for the remission of your sins and for the gift of the Holy Spirit. May God bless you this week. And once again, happy Father's Day.